You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff of Atavist. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. Hello, gentlemen. Great intro. Yeah, awesome intro. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Thanks. Who do we have this week, Aaron? Uh, Keith Gessen. Keith is the fa- one of the founding editors of N Plus One. He's also written a bunch of features for The New Yorker and a lot of reviews. And he's a, he's a super nice guy, actually. Um, I really liked hanging out with him. I'd, I'd have him back. Which would not be hard because their office is on our floor. That is also true. Um, we got a sponsor this week. It's Tiny Letter, a simple but powerful way to send an email newsletter from the good people at MailChimp. Thank you, guys. Let's do it. Uh, hello, Keith Gesson. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thanks for having me. This is a very special podcast in that it's the uh, first podcast that's happened entirely on the floor where our office is. Uh, Keith uh, works at N Plus One, who are our uh, floor mates here in Dumbo, Brooklyn. Yeah, I just had to walk down the hall. I got lost. Yeah. It's a bit of a maze. Well, the numbers aren't, uh, they're not linear in sequence, the numbers on this floor. That's right. When did, when did you guys move in here? We moved in here 2008, so five years ago almost. Five years ago. What was the climate in the building like uh, when you first arrived? When This floor was just, uh, there was nothing. There were no walls. It was just one big open space. And uh, Jacob, the landlord, he kind of walked us around the space a bit. And he was like, how about this corner? And we, we, we were like, okay, that's a good corner. And then he uh, literally just paced off with his feet. He just measured it off with his feet. And he said, oh, that's, you know, 700 square feet. That'll be $1,800. <laughs> that was, that's how we got the space. So a lot of times when I have someone on the podcast, I like literally know nothing about them. Like, you know, there are certain people who are writing out there who you couldn't find a single scrap of biographical uh, information about them on the Internet. And you're someone who uh, I, we have an intern who, like, gives me like a dossier on people before they come in. You got you've got we've, we've got a lot of information about you. Great. There's a lot of information available about you online, but mostly not from um, not in a gossipy way. You, you've written about your own life and you've written about the life of, of being a writer. I know that you uh, moved to New York City when you graduated from Harvard. 
and were living with a wife at the time and um, ended up moving to Boston. I know, I, I know a fair amount sort of about your story. Um, I, I don't necessarily want to uh, drag you through uh, your entire early 20s uh, chronologically, but, but what were you thinking when you, when you arrived as a 22-year-old? What, what, what uh, dreams did you bring to New York City? Oh, you know, um, I did go to Harvard. I managed to go there and not uh, really learn anything about uh, becoming a professional anything, um, including how to become a professional writer. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of amazing in retrospect, but... Because you, you, you can go through Harvard and, and really kind of emerge on the other side with a job at the New York Times or a job at the New Yorker mm-hmm. uh, as an assistant or a, f- a fact-checking job at the New Yorker. Um, people do that, and I managed not to do that. Um, Was this like a like bongs and hacky sack kind of thing, or like what what uh, what else were you up to? Uh, I was I was uh, I played football um for a couple of years so that so i was uh, i was playing a lot of football yeah um, i'm familiar with this sport yeah and uh that was so that so that was a, a bit more of my social circle yeah uh, at school and um and also i had i think i had a lot of uh i guess it was my feeling that a real writer does not actually hang out with other writers so at that point you wanted to be a real writer. Yeah. 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 Yes. Well, like what, what was your model of like a real writer at like 21? Uh, you know, uh, Hemingway and, and, yeah. and Faulkner. That was, yeah. that was so, um, you know, and those guys, uh, well, you know, now I know that Hemingway hung out with all sorts of writers. Yeah. Right? But at the time I thought of Hemingway as a guy who, you know, went to the woods and, and hunted and, and then went off to the war. Occasionally right. punch someone. I mean, occasionally punch, but not or was punched. Only, only, only non-writers. Um, right. So you, you, you arrived in New York, and um, you've documented pretty extensively in this essay. Um, for people who are listening, there's an essay called uh, "Money" that was published in uh, N Plus One, and I believe 2006, 2007, mm-hmm. um, about sort of. Uh, it's really like a, a a resume in a way with um, salary attached. To, uh, of the writing jobs that you held and survived on through your twenties, um, you you reviewed extensively. Mm-hmm. What? How did like as a um, as someone who hadn't really considered the um, possibilities of actually becoming a writer and trying to earn a living? Wh- what were those first few reviews like? Oh, um, okay. I mean, to go back a bit. So you know, I yeah. moved to I moved to New York. I didn't know. Um, how one went about being a writer and I, and I, um, just basically, I was like, well, if I uh, keep my expenses down, that will be my, my best shot at it. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine who's still a good friend, uh, Matvey Yankelevich, who, uh, runs Ugly Duckling Press. Um, poet. He, he's a poet. Yep. And a publisher. And he was just leaving his apartment in Queens. So, uh, we took over his apartment at yeah. a nice, I think the rent was $714 for one bedroom apartment. So, um, and I got a temp job at, uh, Morgan Stanley, Dean Witter, mm-hmm. um, as a, I was doing PowerPoint slides. So I, I, I think, uh, the temp agency gave me a class for a week that taught me PowerPoint. So I would go in there, um, two days a week and that was 
enough to pay our rent. Uh, going in there two days a week was basically enough to pay our rent and, and have food, and we had a very tight budget of yeah. like $100 a week. And um, and then I was writing uh, short stories, and um, yeah, I spent the whole year writing short stories, and I would kind of send them out. I sent one to uh, The Baffler. Oh, yeah. Um, it was in 1998, and I still haven't heard back. <laughs> But uh, so yeah, you still got time. I got time. Yeah, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. <laughs> uh, and and then um, I started reviewing. Actually, uh, after a year of this, I moved up. We moved up to Boston, and I was I got a job as an usher at the Kendall Cinema in uh, in Cambridge. So that was not a very well paying job. Um, and I started reviewing for a place called Feed, which was part of the first uh, dot-com boom. And uh, it's amazing to think of now. This was a place that paid 50 cents a word. And all of our listeners are going to want a time machine back to this. Yes. <laughs> uh, 50 cents a word. Um, and you could, you know, you could go and on and this is and on. $1999. That's right. That's right. It went, well, no, I mean, this, this, that's is, right. this is when a Coke was 50 cents. Um, uh, when an apartment was, you know, $800. Yeah. So um, that's like twice as, that's like a dollar word now. I mean, literally, right? Well, in New York, I mean, you know, there's all these things. Well, you've written about education, which is probably inflated the most, but New York itself is just has this unbelievable growing in every way it's in real estate it's in the cost of everything i mean we're actually growing faster than the rest of the country we're uh, economically breaking off the rest of the country in terms of cost of living um and and meanwhile i mean i was looking at at you know a, a place that i wrote for a bit uh about 10 years ago was slate yeah um which used to pay reasonable um fees and i think now pays less uh, the Times pays less. I mean, this is—it's scary to think. I mean, there's wage, there's wage uh, deflation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the writing business. Yeah. So, um, um, so you you uh, you you were working at a, at a, as an usher at a theater in Queens. And you were doing doing reviews. Mm -hmm. at, at what point did you start feeling like eh, I'm a I'm a real writer? Like uh, I'm really doing it here. Like what, when when did you turn the corner to the point where you felt like this was really a, a profession? Uh, I guess when I, when I felt like, um, well, I, you know, in a way pretty early on because I was started writing for feed and I, I quit my job as an usher yeah. because I was basically able to pay our rent by writing these pieces for feed. And again, you know, our expenses were super low. Um, but, uh, yeah, I made, I don't know, I made. $25,000 that year writing yeah. for feed. And that was enough. Good times. Good, yeah. Um, so you've written pretty extensively, um, about the book industry actually a as a, a capitalistic force and, um, the economics of being a writer. What, what draws that to you as a subject matter? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. I mean, one is that writing is one of these things that is, sort of mystified, right, yeah. by um, our our system where you are supposed to think of the writer as existing in some kind of um, 
space that's outside of the market or outside of capitalism mm-hmm. um, and being inspired. Yes. Uh, whereas, in fact, you know, these are people who are subject to the very same forces yeah. uh, as everyone else. So that's one. Um, the other thing is, I am interested, I'm very interested in these questions of who has money, who doesn't, why this is, um, who set this up this way. Uh, And it just so happens to be that the writing business is the one that I know the most about. I don't, it's not that I think writers are more interesting than other people. I don't, but um, I, it has a case study. Yeah. It happens to be the one that I have a lot of information about. When you, when you've reported in Russia, uh, you were born in Russia, yes? Yes. Yes. Um, what is your reporter persona going to Russia and, and writing stories? Are you, uh, um, do you see yourself as an alien, uh, a native? What, what kind of a, what kind of an attitude do you bring when you, uh, when you're working in Russia? Oh, uh, I feel myself very much a native. I oh, mean, okay. I become native very quickly. I, I have a lot of family mm-hmm. in Moscow, so I have two grandmothers and a sister and mm-hmm. aunts and uncles. So, um, you know, when I'm writing about Russia, I'm, I'm writing about things that affect my family. Right. Um, I have more family in Russia than I do in America. Mm. So, so um, I, I don't think of myself as uh, a, a foreigner. I, I do think that, you know, um, the people that I'm interacting with think of me as a foreigner. Right. So um, they just, just, you know, for various reasons. Uh, uh, and, and in a way that, that, gives me a, a bit of an advantage because sure. um, they think I'm dumber than I am. Does does the fact that you're writing, say, for The New Yorker or an American magazine um, make you make it more okay to talk to you because it's not being published within the Russian press? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, they don't really know what The New Yorker is and, and a lot of them end up not reading the stuff. So in a way, I'm, I'm a bit, I have a, a kind of freer hand yeah. I've had a few, you know, the few situations where I've had reactions to my stuff in Russia have been really unpleasant. Really? Uh, profoundly. I mean, um, after I published an article in The New Yorker about uh, the fact that uh, the city of Moscow could not solve its traffic crisis, yep. there was actually a kind of amazing attack on me in the um, newspaper uh, put out by the mayor's office hmm. and it was you know it it said things like even Gessen's colleagues um, don't understand why he hates Russia so much <laughs> uh, and it was clear they had not talked to any of my colleagues it was just something that there's you a know, Chad Harbaugh quote there about right, 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 yes <laughs> Keith really hates uh, Russia <laughs> he, no. said he talks about it in the office all the time <laughs> uh, it was amazing and then and then you know and they were like well what, what would what would uh, the US think of a Russian journalist who came over to New York, yeah. you know, and criticized their mayor. <laughs> you know, what would they think of that? They, they would probably deny him a visa next time he applied for a visa. Yeah. And of course the answer is, you know, uh, an American, the, the, you know, the Bloomberg administration probably not read yeah. something that was written in the Russian press. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you, there was a kind of veiled threat that I would not get a visa, um, which, which I thought was, which was kind of upsetting. So and you're not like a you're not a citizen. No, I got to go get a visa that. every yeah. time. Yeah. So and if you were to piss off the regime enough, I, the regime is probably unfair um, or not. Uh, you could you could be barred from from writing in Russia. 
Yeah, and that does happen to that yeah. does happen to journalists. I mean, yeah. um, that's I mean, it's kind of the worst thing that can happen to a foreign journalist is y- you don't have a lot of foreign journalists getting beaten up. Or, right. Um, although it does happen, um, but you do have a, once in a while they do get uh, kicked out of Russia. I had a situation where I I uh, was briefly arrested, and um, and they were like, "Wow, well, you you might get you know deported," yeah. and I was like, "Well." Boo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? Who, who's paying for that flight? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, you, you, when you're in Russia, you're like, oh, they're going to kick me out of this um, very unpleasant, uh, <laughs> violent country. I, you know, I, I'll probably get over it. But 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 actually, it would be a real bummer if if I couldn't ever go there and yeah. know, visit my grandmother's, sure, for example. Sure. So, um, well, it would also be, you know, unfortunate as a writer. I mean, I feel like, you you know, writing about Russia is a, it's a unique project for you that you do have certain advantages in you have a certain history that you're able to bring to it. And there aren't, you know, there aren't 500 Americans who, who can write well about Russia simply, you know, because of their backgrounds there, there is sort of a limited pool and that, you know, it wouldn't be hard. Russia could, uh, could cut off most of the high quality journalism about it. It's published in America by just banning like a, you know, half dozen people. So it's yeah. And, and, um, yeah, they might, they might like to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That might, that Um, might be on the agenda. You know, I didn't start out thinking I was going to be a writer who wrote about Russia a sure. lot. Um, and in a way, as a when I was really young, I kind of fled that mm-hmm. subject. I really wanted to be an American writer. Did you grow up like? Uh, did you grow up in like a Russian American culture, or were you? I grew up. Yeah, I grew up in in a place called Newton, outside of outside of Boston. Um, and all my parents' friends were. Russians. My parents didn't have any American friends, mm-hmm. and so I, and I was a lot of my friends growing up were the children of um, of these uh, of Russians. So yeah, we were. Um, I had a lot of Russian friends growing up. Um, but you, that was not sort of something you wanted to pursue as a writer. Was this sort of a Russian Russian Americanness? Right. Um, yeah. It wasn't, and uh, yeah, it was. It was sort of in my in my twenties as I kind of. Um, started, you know, uh, getting on my feet as a writer mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I was writing about both things and I, and I still write about America also, but, sure. but, um, I just found that I could get really interested, um, and, you know, remain interested thinking about this Russian stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it was something that I knew about that other people didn't know about. Um, and I just, I, I found it very satisfying. Yeah. Um, and I still do. And, and, and I, I anticipate a, a moment where I, I will stop, but. Well, it sort of draws a thread to some of the conversation we were having about nonfiction and fiction, which is there to distill your ideas about fiction. There is some like, yeah, you write about things, you know, about write about the world that you're from. And that is a unique part of your world is having access to Russia and having, you know, that, that is unique in its own way um let's let's sort of uh, zoom ahead here if we if we can um a lot of people who are listening probably uh know you primarily as one of the founders of n plus one um which as previously discussed um has an office on this floor um n plus one is founded in what year uh 2004 2004 
um, on kind of a shoestring, basically four guys throwing in a couple grand a piece and starting a magazine. For a total of $8,000. So this was coming out of a period of your life where you were getting a little work writing, doing reviews and publishing occasionally. What what made you say like I'm I'm gonna like start a magazine? Oh um yeah there was a there was a, a bunch of us who were all publishing book reviews basically mm-hmm. and um that was fine yeah. and yet we felt we could do more yes uh and there was you know we were especially when you're doing book reviews it's like you're either doing one you're, you're kind of either writing very literary stuff or you're writing political stuff or maybe you're writing literary stuff for political publication. I think a lot of us were in the position of um, writing book reviews for The Nation, for Dissent. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were kind of like the literary guys at The Nation or Dissent, these political magazines. Yeah. Um, and the stuff that we really liked to read uh, was stuff that combined these things. So um, that was both political and literary and um, so we, we, we just thought there was more ambitious writing that we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and, we, you know, we, li- we literally had the experience of writing things that weren't getting published. Um, what, give me, like, wh- what, what kind of stuff were you writing that didn't, what was the void? The void. Uh, so, you know, uh, I think the best example is Mark Greif was writing these pieces that were, this combination of kind of um, philosophy and something academic, kind of literary criticism and contemporary politics. And he just was able to combine these things in in ways that I thought were very interesting and I still find very interesting. Um, And there was just no place for them. So um, in the first issue of N plus one, there's an essay called uh, Mogadishu Baghdad Troy, uh, which looks at... American warfare in um, Somalia, in the Mogadishu, and the way it's described in the book Black Hawk Down, and compares this to the way uh, the Trojan War was described by Homer, mm. and finds that, in fact, these things are have a lot in common. Um, the action is described in uh, very similar ways by Mark Bowden and by Homer, <laughs> um, but the difference is that in Homer, you have two sides. And in Black Hawk Down, you have only one side. You only see the American side, and the other side does not exist except to be slaughtered. And, and uh, this is a really profound observation. Sure. And, and it's arrived at through these various uh, ways, and it's written in a I, you know, very exciting prose. Um, there, was no, there was no place for this Sure. Um, in... 2004. Do you think the climate has improved for a piece like that or, or gotten worse? Um, I think it's improved. Yeah. I mean, we're going on what, eight, eight or nine years now. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it bears some mention um, for people who have always lived in the age of the internet that there, there wasn't nearly as much web publishing at this, at that point. There weren't, there wasn't actually the diversity of publications then that, that exists now. Um, uh, N plus one, at least as I encountered it, uh, was notable because it was a sort of an upstart uh, new thing in, in a climate where there weren't a lot of new things. There was things closing, but not a lot of things opening. What was that like for you personally? Yeah, it's a lot of places had closed. Um, 
the Baffler had closed, yeah. a place called Hermanot, which mm-hmm. uh, we had really uh, read and liked a lot in the 90s, had closed. Lingua Franca yeah. had closed. Um, and then the Partisan Review died. And the only thing that had opened was McSweeney's. Right. And uh, McSweeney's was, was very exciting, and yet we felt like they were doing everything wrong. Yeah. Uh, in the way that you, something that you're very sympathetic to, but is a little bit different from what you wanted. Yeah. Uh, you sure. feel like they're doing everything wrong. So, um, yeah, well, starting the magazine was, was, was amazing. It was, you know, I'd spent, uh, I guess at that point I'd been out of school for six or seven years. Yeah. Um, and that entire time I was trying to write and was basically sitting in a room. Um, I'd gone to grad school, which you know, you, you you have to socialize a bit in grad school, but not really. You're really supposed to kind of go home and write all the time. Um, and it kind of got me out of the house, uh, starting on plus one. Yeah. And, and, and it turned out there was this just uh, a lot of enthusiasm for it. And, you know, at the time, I guess things have changed now, and I have no idea really whether they've <laughs> changed. But, but at the time... Um, you know, it felt like if you went to a party, it was like a lot of, I don't know, fashion people or art people. Everybody was yeah. really a lot of good looking people. Yeah. And it was it didn't seem. And like, then you went to a literary party and it was always kind of stuffy and, and boring. And uh, we wanted literary people to have a bit more fun. And that was something that in the first few years we were able to do. We got a public urination ticket outside a uh, N plus one party. That's the sort of party that, uh, that we used to and it, I nearly went to jail for it actually. I'm sorry. I did not, I'm sorry I to hear pay, that. I didn't pay it. And then I, uh, I got a summons. I went to get, and I, I like just remembered the summons, like the day it was happening. And I went in there and it was like entirely me and, um, black car drivers who had picked up like, um, fares that had flagged them. So it was like the same plea, same plea, same plea, and then the public urination plea came up, and I tried to be like fake, like lawyerly, just like a dick, and it just like it fell so flat. Like I've never, I've never been like as tonally off as that public urination summons. I really thought I was gonna like really impress the judge and be witty. And he was having none of it. Just everyone else was getting their fine reduced. Like the, if you show up, your fine gets cut in half. Pay the full fine. Well, I'm sorry about that. I don't but, blame you personally. But, you know, you th- but like, yes, you you you, th- you threw a good party. We threw um, a good party. We we would try. We tried to have make sure there were at least two bathrooms. But you know, you have 300, 400 people. That's you need more bathrooms than that. And some pe- people go on the street and they get arrested. You, I mean, you also, and you sort of touched on this lightly with McSweeney's, but there was also a certain uh, uh, climate in the air of uh, N plus one kind of starting some, some literary fights kind of uh, calling, calling people out and, and um, uh, being open about talking uh, critically, not about uh, literary issues, but about other magazines and about writers. W- was that a, was that a, a strategy from the beginning? Is that just who you guys are? I think it's who we are. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are like that, uh, yeah. but but, I'm a coward myself, but oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, I well, but I, I, I do think there was this idea that was uh, current in those years that everybody should be nice to one another mm-hmm. because this whole literature thing that we've got going, 
it's in decline, right? So um, we need to just be nice to one another and try to promote this literature thing and, you know, make sure people know that literature is good for them. Yeah. um, And maybe they'll throw a few bucks our way. And, you know, we came kind of separate in from separate directions. Um, I came from a kind of disputatious Russian tradition. Um, the yelling tradition. Yelling at one. Yeah. 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 That was um, my sister had a girlfriend who was English and uh, she always found it very disturbing to have dinner. Uh, you know, with the family in Moscow because there was just a lot of noise and yelling. And yeah. That was just, yeah. And, um, you know, Marco came, Marco Roth came from kind of New York Jewish disputatious tradition. And um, Mark came from, a, a, his, you know, his tradition. So so we we all were, a, a, you know, came from these traditions where arguments were a good thing and especially arguments about literature, yeah, I mean, what what are you going to argue about if not about the thing that's the most important thing in the world, which is literature? It's so, interesting because I had never I met you the, this year. This is the first time I had met you, and I remember I, I I followed you during those years, and I was like, wow, these guys are some fucking uh, like aggro dudes. Like they're like they're out there starting some fights, and then when I met you, and it's sort of the way that like you know when you're doing like chat with someone on the computer, and someone will say something, and you're kind of like whoa, that was kind of harsh. And you're like, oh, maybe the tone's wrong. I can't really tell. Like when I met you in person, you kind of have a sense of humor about it. But like when you read that stuff, it's kind of like, wow, this guy wants to fucking like murder the editorial staff of McSweeney's. No, but yeah, well, do you, I, I, mean, I didn't do, write that. Yeah. But do, do you, <laughs> like I totally understand the urge to ruffle the feathers, but was there ever th- any thought that that was going to sort of overshadow what the work you are producing or is that built into the work you're producing? Um, well, you know, I mean, to be fair to the magazine, I mean, yeah. the, the idea was always, we would have this short stuff up front sure. that was really, um, angry and d- denouncing of everyone. And then we would have this longer stuff in the, in the middle of the art of the, um, magazine that was deeper and longer and, um, still uh capable of you know still polemical at times right but um less focused on uh you know the kind of intramural intellectual arguments right yeah um so uh, you know but but it it, it was never supposed to be never supposed to be personal right um but it is i mean everything's personal so yeah it's hard i mean you know you want to say, look, I, th- this person's a nice person, but I think their work is shit. And, and yeah. not only do I think it's shit, I think it's evil. Right. Yeah. Um, but if the, I met the person, I'm sure nice person, you know, if they are a nice person, then, yeah. you know, I would, I would uh, relate to them as a nice person. Right. Even yeah. as I, uh, it's great. It's, it's something I like, I like in, in talking to you. Cause like, I, I'm not a, I'm not, I don't write like I, so I'm like, if I wrote, I'd be like, I bet that guy hates my writing. <laughs> Yeah, probably. It's great, but it's great yeah. like going out there and not being a writer. You can just be like, yeah, he hates lots of other people's <laughs> writing, but it's probably cool with me. Um, yeah. So when you start a project like that, I mean, I'm I'm sort of thinking about the models of publications that you talked about that were closing. Do, is that a forever project when you when you start something like that? Are you its are you its steward? Uh, 
into eternity? How long did you, as as thirty year old guys, um, starting a journal and, and talking a pretty big game and 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 saying this is important, this you should subscribe, you should make this a part of your your reading. How long did you expect to to do it? Uh, we thought. 10 years. We thought 10 issues or 10 years, and that was the maximum. And you're at how many issues now? We're at uh, 15 issues and uh, eight years. Eight years. Yeah. So, um, and but, and and in fact, we were right. I mean, 10 years is, that's generous. That's just. That's a long fucking time. That's a long time. Yeah. And we are the sort of founding editors are slowing yeah. down we're not mad at anyone anymore yeah um we think everything's great yeah. um i think martin amos has described this um he has a kind of uh taxonomy of of uh book reviewers you know yeah. it's the angry young person and then the kind of accommodating middle-aged person and then at the end uh, a burbling satisfaction with all that exists <laughs> and, it's kind of it's kind of like a pick up basketball game where at first you like you know your young guys are doing hard fouls and like getting into fist fights and then at a certain point you're just like happy to be there and then you're like only playing one out of every two games and yeah well that ha- and that happens uh, to you as a writer and yeah, you just you just can't be as upset about these things anymore. Whether it's because you have uh, become friends with some of these people, or you just can't, you're just thinking about other things. Um, but amazingly, mm-hmm. at N Plus One, we've had this younger generation kind of rise up. That's what I was going to ask you. Do you like recruit like um, angry young men to take your to to fill your shoes? <laughs> well, angry young women. Actually, yeah, I've noticed that actually yes. over there. Yeah. So. Um, just in the past few years, it, it used to be uh, when we were starting out, young people would come to us, and um, for whatever reason, we didn't have room for them, or we were actually too close to them in age, and they would soon leave in anger. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of the pattern for, for, for the first few years. And then, you know, about a year ago, year and a half ago, um, it became the case that that either the organization was was big enough or we were kind of more absent enough or something has has created space for for younger editors to to come in and be really angry um and you know in the in the just the most recent issue there was a denunciation of uh, harpers and the atlantic that yeah was, and the that... paris review and frankly um you know, I couldn't, I couldn't care less. Well, and you must have, um, numerous friends at every one of those publications. Yeah. Especially Harper's. Look, if you don't have any friends at some of those places, you might at some point be pitching people at those places. I mean, it's certainly possible. Do you, I'm impressed that you, that you're able to be such a, um, serene old man. Like, do you, when you see something like that, are you like, Oh, hold on guys. Like, let's, let's not go too far here. No, I mean, well, certainly that that impulse was there, and and um, we for had, people for people who are looking, this is the letters from the editor of the most. Re- this is the most recent N plus one or two yeah, this is that? issue fifteen. Issue 15. Uh, you know, we began with these denunciations of other magazines. That was an issue one. We denounced yeah. the New Republic and McSweeney's and the Weekly Standard. That was what we began with, and then you know, recently, you know, was we, the ten year plan mapped to get every single magazine over 10 years, th- three or four magazines denounced on each issue. 
well, yeah, that would that would have covered all of them. But yeah. but over time, we became you know uh, less interested in that stuff. How do you feel about Mad Magazine? <laughs> Great magazine. Great magazine. We did we did denounce. There was a moment where we denounced Hebe, and you know we denounced the Jewish magazine. Juicy. The other Juicy. One yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But then they all Tablet. closed. They all closed except Hebe. Hebe is going strong. Yeah. Good for them. Um, anyway, yeah. But so yeah. So these younger editors yeah. have come up, and 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 um, they're still really angry about all this stuff, and it's just great. Do you do you want to like do you want to tell them or anything, or you want to just like let things run their course? Oh no, I think I think that's great. I want to yeah. hold on to that. I yeah. mean, that's holy. That's the thing that makes great writing. Yeah. Um, it's being angry. That's. <laughs> That's uh, uh, of of the founders, um, Ben Kunkel has come out with a couple, not one novel, and um, Indecision, and Chad Harbach um, did Art of Fielding, very well known novel. So people have, in certain ways, um, moved on to 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 I wouldn't say bigger things, but things that they may be known for. Chad Chad is probably known as the the author of the Art of Fielding more than he's known as a, as a founder of N Plus One. Is that something you want to sort of follow you forever, or do you do you see um, at some point emerging and, and leaving it behind, leaving N plus one behind? Yeah, I mean you've done and you too. You've done um, a bunch of pretty big features for the New Yorker. You know, like uh, when I told my mother that you were going to be on the podcast, I described a New Yorker star, and she's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that guy. I know that. I know who that guy is." And um, you know, how does it feel going into our shitty office building um, and and working with young young angry people every day? Oh well, you know, um, I love N plus one. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, I mean, the, the the moral of the story of the young people coming up is means that it can live mm-hmm. maybe another ten years. Yeah. Um, so you've you've reset you you've moved the chains. Yeah. 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 That's First cool. down. That's got to feel good. I mean, that's an accomplishment in sort of its own right to uh, to just. To endure. Yeah. 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 I'm impressed like in talking with you and sometimes I felt like guilty about this afterwards. Like I'm, I'm an, I'm a man from the internet. I come from the internet. The internet is a place of uh, gigantic numbers, but you're producing a, uh, a magazine for a passionate, but limited audience. I mean, you, you pour your heart out um, for these issues that I, I, I won't ask you to cite exactly circulation numbers, but they're in the, the in the four digits, I would guess, probably. They're in the high four digits. High four digits. Um, whereas when you do a, a piece for The New Yorker, that probably is viewed, you know, more in the six to seven digits, um, if it's on the web, say. Um, you know, in 2004, that, that if, if I told you, hey, you're going you're gonna to get close to hitting that fifth digit, that probably would have felt, pretty good i would think to, to get this kind of material out but it is it is small in the context of of sort of mass media and the web yeah and and you know we don't we want it to be bigger yeah and that's what we that's why i go in there every day and that's what we're doing in there every day is trying to we want to produce the stuff but we also want to get it out to a yeah. wide audience um and i think we could be so we're we print eight thousand copies now i'd like to print twenty thousand how do you find that those new N plus one fans, uh, how do you find that next generation who's, who's younger than you? We, we try, uh, everything. Yeah. Well, not everything. I mean, you know, our, our resource is limited, but obviously the, the web is, is a good way to find them. Yeah. Um, there's problems with finding people on the web. Sometimes, 
they are more loyal to their aggregators than they yeah. are to their content producers. No, no comment. No comment. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, of course. So you know that's a that's a, a kind of you you, you want to be aggregated. Yeah. Right. Um, you want the link from long form or yeah. AL Daily. Yeah. Um, but you also want to make sure people know where they get the good stuff. Uh-huh. You know and. Yeah. Um, so I think the internet, I think you, there's still some outlets for writing about literature, mm-hmm. um, in, in newspapers, uh, yeah. the New York times still occasionally does this. So we're always trying to get stuff in the press. Uh, we have a lot of events so people can come to the events and, and learn about it. Um, you know, you gotta just keep hustling all the time. I've seen you guys out in the back when the truck comes in unloading a new issue. Um, and this is like a, it's a, it's a, it's a real sight to behold. The truck shows up with boxes of N plus one and they cart them up here and unbox them. Why, why continue to print N plus one, um, in, in that mission that you just described, uh, of building that base, certainly easier and more efficient and cheap to get new people online. What, what drives the, uh, the print? I well, I would say, I would say three things. First of all, we used to, um, until just a few months ago, we used to drive to the printer and pick up the N plus one. So when the truck pulled up, that was truck driven by. One oh, that of our I only, I only saw the very end of that. Yes. Uh, interchange. So, yeah. Uh, it's possible that we were driving the truck that pulled yeah. up and we unloaded it. Um, it, it you know, and, and it's fun to do that. It's fun yeah. to hold the thing in your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, you know, we're publishing stuff that's twelve. 14,000 words long. Um, I read a lot of stuff online, but yep. when it gets to that length, I'm not reading it online. I'm reading it. I'm printing it out, right? So um, why not let us print it out for you? Yeah. Uh, it's still pretty cheap to print stuff. It's not expensive to mm. print. We're not spending a ton of money on printing. And it's not like a heavily designed magazine where you guys have layout artists or anything. It's pretty text-based. We, we have a very good designer, but yeah, yeah. it's we don't. it's in black and white. So that keeps the price way down. Yeah. Um, you know, it costs $2 an issue basically to print it. Yeah. It's cheap, uh, especially when you're in the kind of where we are uh, in the number of, that we're printing. So it's not expensive. It's also the only thing that we can recoup uh, any money on, right? So if we actually want to keep employing people um, and and paying our writers a little bit mm-hmm. um, and, we're tr- and we're trying to pay them more, uh, print still is people are willing to pay for it yeah they are not paying us for the stuff on the web so you haven't you haven't seen traction in selling sort of digital access to to n plus one at this point um we are selling um a growing a growing proportion of the subscribers are digital subscribers uh but still it's pretty you know it's uh 15%. 15%. 15%. 15%. So, so yeah, it's growing, but it's still not the whole thing. Um, I mean, I, you know, there's still going to be for the next, I don't know how many years, 50, 40, yeah. 30 people who prefer to read stuff on paper. 50 years? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. How long am I going to be alive, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I yeah. still, you know, it's just more relaxing to sit yeah. on the couch and read something on paper. So, um, you know, while for, for the moment, the economics of it makes sense. Um, you know, we're trying to get it out and we'll, we'll get it to you in any kind of channel that you prefer. You just run it over to my house if I pay enough, just hand delivery. Yeah, we'll hand, we will do, do yeah, it, we do will get it to you. We'll get it to you. Yeah. So, um, probably I'm guessing that like writing for the New Yorker is more lucrative than working at N plus one also. 
so is this sort of like a, a total labor of love for you right now or oh um no yeah i well i i i do love n plus one um you know, writing for the New Yorker is not as lucrative yeah. as you might think. Well, you know, it just, it just takes a long time to write one of those. Pieces. I would, I would think so. What, what is when you're doing those peaches? I assume those peaches are kind of difficult to pitch because you're kind of, you know, you're parachuting into a, you know, a zone that you might. I'm assuming that you didn't have like extensive knowledge of Kazakhstan, say, before you reported there. Well, what's the process like uh, pitching a piece where you're going to Kazakhstan, say? I learned when I was a staff writer at New York Magazine that pitching stuff to editors is, um, in a way, it's kind of hopeless because as a writer, you just don't know what editors are thinking, (laughs) um, and you'll never know what they're thinking. And so with The New Yorker, um, they sent me to Kazakhstan, and they sent me to the Arctic, did you know what the story was going in, or they're just like Kazakhstan story? Yeah, they're like go to Kazakhstan, and you know, I mean, uh, they wanted a story about the new capital of Kazakhstan, right? Yeah. With the Arctic, they want a story about um, economic change in the Arctic. Yeah. So, so there's a kind of vague, uh, you know, outline, and then you have to fill it in. Yeah. Um, with uh, Moscow traffic, that was a story I pitched numerous times. And they were like, this doesn't sound like a story that's going to work. You can understand where they're coming from. I guess. But no, I can't. And, <laughs> and so I just did it. Yeah. Um, oh, you and, did it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've done that a few times where I, I just thought, I, you know, I, you, you, you can ask for permission all you want. You yeah. might never get permission. And if you think it's a good idea, you just do it and then you send it to them. And sometimes it works. And Well, that's interesting. So how, how long did you spend on that Moscow traffic piece? Pro I bono. spent a, I spent That's not about a, a short year. story. I yeah. spent a year. I mean, I actually, I actually flew back to Moscow several times uh, to to kind of do more reporting on it. So, what happens if the New Yorkers like eh, we were kind of right? We're not into Moscow traffic. Then you know, I publish it uh, on my blog. Um, is that like a is that so? That's a gamble for you. I mean, that's a that's a that's a year down the tubes if that were to happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not the only thing I did during that year. Um, it's a huge investment though. uh, Yeah. Personally. uh, Yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's, it's, um, descent used to have a, a nice little note for contributors and it said, uh, you know, if you want to write a piece, just write it because otherwise we're going to have this long correspondence about it, you know? Um, and, and, and as, you know, as an editor on plus one, well, you know, sometimes it's it's good to have a conversation about it before, but yeah. most of the time, because um, because certain subjects I just know we're not interested in, right? You know, and I can tell you that in advance. Um, but uh, a lot of the time, you know, it can be a subject that we're interested in, but it all depends on how you write it up. Yeah, we never even talked about the fact that you've written a book, which um, I will will be in the show notes. We'll put a link to it. Um, all the sad young literary men. Um, yes. Did I get that right? I think so. Um, as someone who has published now some some fiction and some nonfiction, what uh, what uh, what excites you going forward? Oh, um, I'd like to write a, a, some more fiction. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to keep doing both those things and trying to, um, you know, get buy some health insurance. Yeah, that's a good. I like. I think we can all agree. Let's get some health insurance. That's a. Good, it's a good note to to close on. It's a uh, dangerous world out there. Totally. Well, and you know, you're out in Russia. 
really need some health insurance. I'm Anywhere, if you're on your bike in Brooklyn. Yeah, oh, yeah totally. Um, thank you very much, Keith Gesson, for coming in. It's been a pleasure. The, the newest N plus one is uh, on the newsstands. Did you say it on the newsstands? It sure is. Uh, yep. what's, what's the title? What's the, uh, what's the theme of the most recent one? Amnesty. Amnesty. Pick it up. Hot off the press is Amnesty. Uh, thanks, Keith. Thank you. And that was the long form podcast. Thank you very much to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, thanks to Keith Gesson for walking the 17 feet down the hallway to come tape this. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern is Sarah Amandolare, who uh, gave me invaluable notes uh, so that I could stock Keith Gesson's whole life. Uh, we'll be back here next week. Check us out on iTunes. Check us out on Instacast. Check us out on Stitcher. run why does anyone i always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case most runners hate running (laughs) but they choose to do it in the new docuseries running socks brought to you by teen milk abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance it really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong teen milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.